0: Think of it the same way you might think of Spain or France. It's, it's a country that has different ethnicities, different climates, different geopolitical concentrations of people and cultures and stuff like that. And of course it has local, regional, seasonal cuisine. Of course it does.
1: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Zolle.
2: So today we have Andy Ricker from Pock Pock and J.J. Good, his co-author. And later on, we'll be talking to Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen with a reader question. But first, Matt, what did you talk about with Andy and J.J.?
1: We talked about a lot of things. We talked about their book Drinking Foods of Thailand, which is the follow-up to Pock Pock, which is a New York Times bestseller and a James Beard winner and one of the my favorite cookbooks ever. And we talked a lot about the way that they approach... Uh, making books, it's a very documentary style. They traveled all around Thailand. They took their their buddy Austin Bush around and uh, and just really covered this food that is really not documented that well. And it was a really fun conversation.
2: Well, here's Andy Ricker and JJ Good live at Books Are Magic in Brooklyn.
1: Road bar, yeah. you, thank you guys. Well, you know I. I wanted to open just by making a little statement about Pok Pok, the first book. You know, it really it, it really changed the game for me. It, it, it was a, it was a document about a cuisine that I didn't really know much about. It was shot in a way that was very it, it was very Andy. You know, it was like very much in your style. You were uncompromising with the art direction and with um with the photography. But most of all, you really you you wrote. Academically, almost in, in in the detail that you wrote about this cuisine, and um, it just to me it was one of the best books I'd ever cookbooks I'd ever read. So I wanted to know, you know, when you went in, you know, Pock Pock took a lot, you know, it took a lot out of you guys when to do that book. It was several years in the making. So how do you get back on the horse and actually create a follow up to Pock Pock with Pock Pock drinking food? Well, I, I think that um,
0: you could equate the Pock Pock cookbook with kind of the the first record that a band puts out. Yeah. You know, you've been practicing for years and years and years and years and you kind of compile all the best stuff you got yeah, and you, and you, you record it. And then the follow up is often, uh, often not as good. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. <laughs> yeah, can... Well, you know, I'm just talking about music right now, JJ. <laughs> okay. <great. laughs> you know, when, when we finished that one and went back to the publisher and said, Hey, you know, um, how about, how about having another deal? Yeah. You know, I, I went back and said, you know, let's, let's, Give us two books. And, um, right. you know, we kind of uh, had two other restaurants to, to kind of work off of. One was the Whiskey Soda Lounge, yeah. and, uh, which is about the kind of food that we talk about in this book. And the other one was a, a restaurant called Senyai, which sadly doesn't exist anymore, which is about noodles, which we're going to do next. So, narrowing the focus, I think, um, made it quite, not quite as overwhelming. So it was ju- actually just as time consuming. Yeah. Yeah. Like like yeah. Not trying to cover everything, but but trying to capture a little bit of the spirit of whiskey soda lounge and, and kind of focus down a little bit further. Uh-huh. Pac Pac is all over the place. There's Vietnamese food in there, there's yeah. you know noodles, there's all kinds of stuff. So this was this was much more focused.
1: So, but I wanted to like start by look, to look at a couple of photos because I think photography sure. is so important in this book. I love it. So I've got these two photos. I have like this one in particular struck me. What is the story for? The, like, you're, there's a hammer and then there's like a shitload of meat on a on a <laughs> on a like, stump. It looks like. Yeah. Before
0: I tell the story of that particular photo, I should explain the way that we shot the sure. book. Um, what I wanted, you know, uh, drinking in Thailand is is Primarily a nighttime pursuit, because most people work during the day. Though it's not 100%. People do drink during the day as well. But I wanted to convey that kind of vibe, that kind of feeling, uh, and also the kind of rough and ready nature of of Thai drinking Mm -hmm. uh, culture. Because, you know, we're, we're concentrating on, as you know, street side places or... You can make those places look pretty if you try enough, but I, they're not pretty, and I, and yeah. and I think that that's good. And you know, <laughs> I, I couldn't think of a better way to shoot them than to use hard flash. Yeah. And and you know, just kind of go blammo, super journalistic style, mm-hmm. kind of capture that kind of roughness. Yeah. Now the the photo you just showed yeah. of the hand with a hammer and a bunch of meat on a tree stump—that's from. <laughs> One of my favorite restaurants in the world is called Padang Jintup, and it's run by this family. Padang is the, is the mom. They built this restaurant on this, literally on the side of the road, like uh, at the intersection of two highways. It's just a dirt patch, and mm-hmm. down a little embankment, they chose a little stand of trees to turn into a kitchen, and they didn't really do much wow. except cut some of the trees down and uh, put, a, put a lean-to shelter on it and uh, put a charcoal grill back there. So it's a dirt floor. And uh, he, he cooks uh, on these sort of very rough barrel grills with just charcoal and, and uh, grates that he pulls up and down with a piece of rope or chain to vary the height off the grill. And uh, the dish they specialize in is jintup, which means hammered meat. So they grill beef or pork and uh, until it's probably about medium well. And then he beats it with a sledgehammer till it mm-hmm. kind of shreds. And then they serve it with a, a chili dip.
1: But uh, this is like a low-key Anthony Bourdain-like photo. It's like not in the front. It's like like it's like it's probably three-quarters of the way through. So talk about this this photo. Does Anthony Bourdain like uh, you?
0: Yeah. So that was taken um, during the time we were shooting an episode of um, – uh, which ones was it? Not No Reservations. Part, but, parts uh, Unknown. Parts Unknown, yeah. Um, and, and the way it went down was that in, in the conceiving of this book, I – initially, I had this idea that I was going to kind of reach out to people I knew in the food world and ask them to come with me, show me what what they liked, or maybe I'd take them somewhere and we'd, we'd have this thing and there'd be this tie-in somehow. I don't know, it was just a goofy idea I came up with. And during that period of time, I emailed Anthony and I said, would you be into doing that? And he said, sure, much to my surprise, I said, sure, why don't we make an episode out of it? Wow. So that's I was cool. like, um, yeah, okay, that's cool. And, <laughs> yeah, <no> sh- uh,
1: <laughs> So we, we host this series monthly, and we've never had the, the J.J. Good of, of the cookbook <clears throat> on stage. Uh, the collaborator is what you call yourself, right? Is that the right term? Sure. Yeah. the 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 writer on the book uh, though Andy writes plenty of the, the text but I thought um, I wanted to invite JJ here in particular because I think you are one of the best uh, in the business but you also have a lot of insight into working with chefs because you worked with so many of them so why don't you give us all kind of a kind of a look inside your process in, in writing uh, both the pop pop books Andy's like easy I have a different
3: role in every um, cookbook I guess depending on whether um, how uh, comfortable a chef is with writing recipes some chefs don't even understand what a recipe is don't want to they like all they want to do is grab things by a handful and you know toss herbs in and they refuse to let me measure everything and it's very annoying but Andy is crazy all his recipes are written down to the to the letter I don't know what the phrase is but to the gram or to the, to the gram to the, to the teaspoon okay. yeah the reason is because it's not in the Western tradition and because the cooks that he hires don't have this kind of these kind of Western culinary instincts, you really need to guide them, guide people toward cooking the food and making it right. You can't say season to taste because a Western cook won't know what that means and, like, what the goal is. So I come in with – all. I mean, all the recipes are written. Uh, so I just uh, cut and paste and then <laughs> – That's it. It's not, it's not quite that. I'll give you a little bit further sort of <laughs>
0: insight into C, it. For both of these books, or, or actually this book didn't follow this format, but for the first book, we, uh, I made JJ come to Thailand for a month. Poor guy. Um, <laughs> and it, it's well, not as glamorous as it sounds. No. We'd get up early in the morning, we'd go get a coffee, we'd go to the market, buy all the stuff we needed to make the dishes of that mm. day, drive mm. uh, 25 kilometers to uh, this rural village where <clears throat> there's a house that belongs to some friends of mine where we cooked everything. And Austin set up a little studio out in a, a little lean-to, so I'd be cooking uh, I'd give JJ a guideline of the, of the recipe and I'd be yelling okay tell me what's next and you tell me what's wow. next yelling is right well you know because we're we're halfway across the the thing and um and then I'd be and I'd be yelling back at him what I was actually doing and he'd be jotting wow. it down and as soon as we finished it to my satisfaction which sometimes would take you know two or three times I'd run it out to Austin, who would quickly take the shot, and I'd run back in
3: and start doing the next dish. And we followed this process uh, for the first recipe, first book. But my, my, my job is to sort of fill in the details that one of your cooks might glean from, from watching you do something. You know, in a cookbook, you have to write down these techniques, and it's really difficult to explain the sort of nuances of, say, pounding a curry paste so I would take video, lots of iPhone videos of Andy, lots and lots of iPhone videos of Andy. If anyone ever steals my phone and finds that, like, it's like a really cute three-year-old kid and like a, a like older gentleman with uh, with uh, tattoos. Um, but I, but I basically would would take videos of what he was doing, and record him. And one thing Andy was insistent on is sort of not deviating, not conceding, not making concessions to the average home cook. I mean, I. I want I when we first started working together, I was like, so you want to do like a Thai 101 book? And he was like, No. And I'm like, Yeah, but like you want to make the recipes like really easy so everyone can make them. He's like, No. Um yeah. and, and what we and, and of course he was right and, and what he settled on was again, this amazing document that sort of records what how the food is made. And if you're gonna ask people to cook this food and it's challenging and you have to shop and all this stuff, then you might as well give people the sort of tools they need to do it. So the recipes are particularly detailed and I was there to, to sort of ask all the dumb questions to provide that detail and get that detail from Andy.
0: Yeah, and my goal I think in, you know, writing the cookbook was so that people could get similar results to the ones that I that I got. In order to do that, you got to do the work and you can't you can't like substitute Ginger for galangal ginger or, or whatever. It just it's not gonna. It's ginger not gonna for work.
1: galangal. No man. And you can't. <laughs> no man. And you can't.
0: You can't not use a mortar and pestle. And you can't. There's yeah. there's a bunch of stuff that just you know if if you want this to turn out extraordinarily well you can't you can't cut a bunch of corners you know but but JJ luckily is uh, understands that my goal and and selling cookbooks uh, could potentially. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, it Could potentially <laughs> end in disaster, and as long as it doesn't
1: uh, it's news to me. Andy. But I'll say the well, book no, we we've, we've done that. The original podcast did sell though you, with this uncompromised did, yeah. view. You did not do the one hundred and one the one hundred and one tie. You you mm. did your book, and it became a New York Times bestseller, which is not. Easy for, a for about ten minutes. Whatever, <laughs> one day. Put that on your headstone. It worked. I mean, commercially and editorially. So tell me this. You know, you're talking about executability of these dishes. That's one thing. But why also? Why else are you writing this book? Because there's other reasons you write books. It's not necessarily just to teach people to cook things, right? There's, I mean. Well,
0: I, you know, I, I think I have a bit of an altruistic streak, and I really feel like Thai food probably in the West hasn't been given its due, and it's a, it's a small little thing but uh i you know it's what i've chosen to believe in and that's what i've tried to convey through the restaurants and the book and everything so the other motivation was jj came and said hey let's write a book (laughs) (laughs) and i said oh okay
1: (laughs) so let's talk about like thai food in general you know it's not monolithic there's regions in thailand i think we oftentimes think it's all the same north south islands but clearly not so let's just Talk a little bit about because we, we've spoken about this at length and this can be of its own panel. But, like, how does it vary throughout the country? Like, is there a way to describe it? I know that this book travels a bit through the country.
0: I think w- without being real tedious about it, I, yeah. you know, I, I, I could you. say that um, <laughs> because it can be tedious, yeah, about it can be I mean, um, a long conversation. Think of it the same way you might think of Spain or France It's it's a country that has different ethnicities, different climates, different geopolitical concentrations of people and cultures and stuff like that. And of course it has local regional seasonal cuisine. Of course it does. Mm-hmm. And having said that, how does it vary? I mean, these days to, to kind of put it in perspective we're it's the 21st century and we've got, you know, high speed trucks and trains and planes that fly shit all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so in Thailand, you can have, um, you can have Southern Thai food in Northern Thailand and you can have, yeah. Isan food anywhere because Isan people are everywhere, and it's it's no longer like hyper regional. Yeah. But but you can still seek out things that are that are hyper regional that don't really make them, make it outside of the regions. There's just uh, there's some generalizations, right? Uh, the south, the very south of Thailand tends to be, you know historically has the spiciest food in Thailand. There's a lot of coconut cream mm-hmm. down there because that's where the coconut palms are mostly, and mm-hmm. a lot of fish. Central Thailand is where the the royal um, court has been for some time, so a lot of the royal food is there. Large Chinese population. You get up to north, and we're in the mountains and the jungles and the rivers and stuff like that. So more herbal, herbaceous, mm. uh, freshwater fish, that kind of stuff. Um, and then Isan is the arid part of the country, also the poorest part of the country. Uh, so the, the food tends to be very simple and direct and
1: uh, you know, frugal. What's an Isan dish that you could point to that... Really represents that what you just said? Um I, I think probably well the, the, the sort of
0: like the iconic dish from there would be a papaya salad. Yeah, okay. Uh, done Lao style, Ysan style. But you know, they do a lot of things like drying meat in the yeah. sun or fermenting meats or or fish.
3: Guys, there are fermented meats in the book. There's, but yeah. not like fermented yeah, you could like kill like, yourself like, doing yeah. that, right? No. No. <laughs> 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 Is my th- I I thought my the one of the people who tested um some of the recipes. During the process of writing the book, part of my job is to ask the questions um, that I think people might have. Um, And one of my favorite questions is, will I die from eating this? (laughs) Um, And there are so many fermented meats in Thailand that I'm like, okay, how do you do this? Like, what are the, what's the ambient temperature? What's the humidity level? And he's like, you just leave it outside. I'm like, yeah, but okay, but like, what do you do? He's like, you just leave it outside. And I'm like, yeah, but you can't do that. He's like, just leave it outside. And um, I sent one of those recipes. wrote We wrote it. I asked Andy all the questions. I sent it to the tester. And the next day I emailed her, how did it turn out? I was really interested to know. You know, how how did this, it was, I think it was the Jinsom um, Mok. And she didn't email me back. <laughs> and uh, I emailed her a couple hours later. I was like, "Hey, how was that recipe?" And I got really worried that I killed her, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> she was fine. She was just busy. It turned out.
0: I, I think that that if she had died, I don't think you would have been saying I killed her.
1: Yeah. I think you no. would have been hightailing it. And <laughs> yeah. I would have. A bigger have been name worn. on the cover of the yeah. book. It's cre- explained, <laughs> Um But let's parse the cuisine further. Uh, the book is called Thai Drinking, the drinking food of Thailand. So we're talking about another, spe- like a specific style of food. So what makes drinking food, drinking food in Thailand? Um, uh, you
0: know, again, it, it, uh, you can make some generalizations about it. Tip- for me, it's typically things that are um, kind of snacky, kind of hot, sour, salty, chewy, bitter, kind of kind of bitter. tend okay. to be um, grilled meats or salads. Mm-hmm. Things that are hot and spicy that linger on the palate that make you want to drink more. Uh, and typically there are things that you don't necessarily eat with rice, though you can there's no, like, there's no hard category. There's no, like, this is, this is the food that you eat when you're drinking, and this is the drink you have when you're eating. It's, right. it's there's a, but generally speaking, there's a category that, you, that people would identify. So, say, and guy taught the chick, uh, chicken, chicken tendons that are deep fried. And that's typically, if you say that to a Thai person, they'd identify it right away as a drinking food of some sort. But it, you know, a drinking food could be something as simple as a mayom fruit, a little mm-hmm. gooseberry that's sour and tart, or it could be a piece of green mango with some chili, or it could be a pinch of fish of shrimp paste, or you know, or it could be like
1: a giant. Pork leg that's been deep fried. You know, yeah. it, it really kinda depends on the on the place. And the point is, is that when you're drinking in Thailand and Southeast Asia in general, you are usually eating with with these sessions with, yeah. with the whiskey or with a Well I think what's
0: family. more important to point out, I think, about uh, drinking culture there is it's a very social thing. It's not it's not a solitary thing. Yeah. You don't you don't typically unless you're just a total basket case, you're not popping down <laughs> to the bar <laughs> just to hang out and drink and that's it. Uh, most people you know, when they go to drink, they, they're with friends, and there's food in, on the table, and uh, beer. Somebody might bring a bottle of whiskey and, and buy some mixers, and it's more, nice. it's more social.
1: What's the latest yeah, you, you
0: know. guys have gone out together? Nine.
3: Nine, Nine p.m.? Nine. Yeah. <laughs> These when are JJ's some early around, to bed, early. Or yeah. These are some old people, nah. Matt. Me, me and Austin, on the other <laughs> hand. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they go to weird places. They go to a place called Tuba. We tuba, did a lot of approaching of, of we did a lot of approaching of strange little bars that were kind of sort of makeshift bars that were maybe like a butcher by day. <laughs> and then they sort of threw a, a wax cloth, oil cloth on and you still see the like butcher Fine. machinery on the bottom.
0: Almost all drinking establishments in Thailand close relatively early at night and the further you get into the country the earlier they close. So it'd be rare to go out and stay up until two in the morning if you're out in the village somewhere. But in the city, people go out you know, and then they go out to nightclubs and then they go and get something to drink and go to the bar that stays open after the cops shut it down, that kind of thing.
3: One thing that was kind of interesting is the role of beer in Thailand. Like I always associate beer with Thai food and you often find yourself drinking beer over ice because uh, it's so hot. But beer is a, is a relatively modern uh, drink in Thailand and and tends to be something people of means drink. Yeah, it's changing
0: now because there's you know there's people got more money these days. But yeah, we, we had a very there's an interesting little passage in the book where uh, I went and talked to this fellow named Nick Birambadi. He's the uh, I believe the grandson of the founder of Singh. and they were like the first big brewery in Thailand. And they kind of it's a, it's a long story. You should read it. What he was saying was that Thailand is and always has been a rice uh, liquor country that's the, that the basis of, of the drinking culture there is and always has been uh, rice uh, whiskey and beer um, was something that they kind of introduced as an import first and then they started making it and it, at, at first it was stuff that, that only kind of high so people could really afford and if you go to uh seven eleven and buy a beer uh, something like maybe 90 baht for a bigger beer 90 or 100 baht so it's a 30-year income mm-hmm one beer the same amount of money will buy you or less will buy you a whole bottle exactly the same size actually probably the same bottle because they just recycle old beer bottles Mm -hmm. to to put the whiskey in cost you the same amount and you know three or four people could sit there and drink that and get drunk and one person drinks one beer and they don't nothing's going to happen so uh, it's much better value still so
1: this is for jj so why do you keep working with Andy Ricker?
3: <laughs> That's a great question. Why do you... Keep I have working? no idea. I love Andy. Because we got a
1: contract.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Blood. <laughs> Andy. Andy's one of my favorite people to work with and I'm not just saying that because he's on stage mm-hmm. with me. He... I, I, I like that Andy is... and his food is sort of tied to a place and culture. It's not creative in the way that we often consider food from chefs creative you know he's not inventing new things and and kind of coming up with twee combos spins Spins? yeah it's not yeah it's not my spin on my spin on papaya salad no deconstruction no deconstruction (laughs) it's real and and he eats it he eats a dish and in many different places and he figures out what he likes most about the dish and comes up with I mean, this is a sort of 20, 25 year quest at this point and figures out what he loves about it and then endeavors to recreate it and do it justice and show people how good it is. And there's something there's something like every question I ask Andy, I I go down some weird road with an answer. You know, there's no, like, why did you make this? Oh, because carrots go really well with avocado. It's no. like, oh, great, cool. <laughs> you know, there's a story. There
1: are people involved. There's, oh, there's always... It's like a low bullshit factor with this guy. There's right? a low, very low bullshit factor. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's cool. I bring and all I'm... the bullshit to the No, equation. I like it. It's, it's very precise and very direct, but it's also very scholarly and journalistic. I think of him as a journalist um, as much as a chef. I, I
0: think of myself more of a, a kind of a bumbling student. Okay.
3: Um, <clears throat> oh, I like that. Ooh, I like that. <clears throat> For the next bumbling one. student.
1: Thank you, Andy Ricker and JJ Good. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys.
2: In our next segment, we are talking to Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen and asking her a question from Marita.
1: Deb, what jars and tubes are in your condiment hall of fame?
2: Oh my goodness. Jars and tubes. And
1: packages and what? you know. Oh
2: my God. What's on I the wish door? I could, like, get up and, like, walk around and give you good answers. There's some, like, we. We have a really hard, like, overcluttered fridge, and I didn't realize this is, like, one of these things that if you never shared a picture of your fridge on the internet, because why would you do that? You would never learn that you actually have a completely insane number of condiments, but we have an insane number of condiments, and they all come in jars and tubes. For tubes, it's mostly harissa and tomato paste, but there's also – and I don't think tomato paste is more of an ingredient than a condiment – but there's also, like, anchovy paste – um. Okay. Gotta have mayo. Gotta have sour so cream. So let's talk about mayo. Have, let's unpack okay. the
1: mayo. Are we talking like Dukes, Hellmans? Are we talking about Hellman's. Miracle no, Whip? No, no.
2: It just there's the Hellmans is the beginning and end. I guess if I was from the south, it might be Dukes, but there's like no other conversation to be had. It's just Hellmans. What about Miracle Whip? What What kind of monster are you? Get out.
1: <laughs> I'm from the Midwest. I'm sorry.
2: Really? Wow. Yeah. It's like it's a real thing. It's a real it's thing. It's happening.
1: <laughs> All right. So moving on from mayo. All right. I mean, we you gotta have at? fish
2: sauce. You have to have the chili garlic paste oh, yeah. um if you've got like a good like indian or whatever grocery store you can get like the chili the ginger garlic um what else i have like eight types of mustard like totally normal right
1: no eight's good uh dijon are we talking about grains we're we talking about honey mustard all oh god above? no
2: nothing like that it's more like just different spicy mustards and then um a, like probably two or three brands of dijon because i'm very like mm. indecisive um and um and a whole grain dijon which i like um capers i i actually like i have some brine and then some salt packed um cornichons olives mm. um
1: are you into the fancy ketchups or oh god no
2: no 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 as soon as i hear a restaurant has homemade ketchup i'm like no i'm like but do you also have heinz i know you, I have just, you just don't need to it's not broken
1: i feel like we're at the fancy food store and we're like shopping right a
2: now. lot of jams a lot of like peanut butter and then also almond butter and then cashew butter and also sunflower seed butter. Oh, wow. Oh. Is that something that other people don't keep in the fridge? There was something when I showed the picture, people were like, "Why is that in the fridge, Deb? I need you I'm to explain pro, it." Bro,
1: I put my peanut butters in the cab in my cabinet.
2: That's how we had it growing up, but at some point we started putting it in the fridge, and now I'm just used to when it. When you
1: ha- but in the fridge, there's when it's chilled, there isn't that oil pool that is in there. Once
2: right? you get it emulsified, well, yeah. I don't.
1: You have to emulsify I, it anywhere. I right? kind of
2: like grocery store peanut butter anyway, so mine's already emulsified. Grocery store,
1: as in like not the freshly ground, but the, like the one from.
2: I mean. The- there is a place for both of them, but most of the time, I'm pretty...
1: Groceries are, like, the Jif brand is delicious.
2: Okay, not Jif,
1: though. Well, no, like, the better version of Jif, Peter Pan.
2: Um, I just think there's a time and place for everything, and um, usually it's Skippy, so... Skippy <laughs> is your
1: brand of choice. Is it crunchy, or is it creamy? Ah! No,
2: don't be weird. It's just the basic.
1: The basic creamy, yeah. Crunchy <laughs> is for charlatans right. <laughs> any last condiments that come to your mind
2: I'm like I'm like it's killing me I can't look so I'm going to find like 42 others but um, yeah um, I think those are the major ones All right. those are probably the big ones well
1: thank you very much we can go peek in your fridge now and see if there's <laughs> any other ones and we'll do a second part of this at some point thank you dad I appreciate it the taste podcast is hosted by Anna Heasel and myself Matt Rodbard it is produced by Gabrielle Lewis Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. Special thanks to Books Are Magic fan Emma, Michael, and Mike. Confidence Wine supplied by Smith & Vine. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. Tune in next week.